So, Paul, today's topic is on hell and what we were not taught in Sunday school. Why is this on your mind? Um, so, so this is a topic that I teach every year in RCIA that I teach a lot in the different, uh, as a catechist, I taught it a lot. And it's one of those things where, especially people who've been Catholic their whole life, who think they know what the church teaches. And then when you go to what the church actually teaches, it's something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a top, those are topics I always enjoy teaching to people, um, mm-hmm. as, especially adults in RCIA. Um, like the sponsors who've been Catholic for 50 years, and then I teach them something new. That's always, that's, that's always really fun. And it's a topic that has gotten a lot of traction in the past few years when talking about, um, can we hope that all are saved and Mm -hmm. the question of universalism. And I think, I think those are good questions and questions that need to be engaged with. So, yeah. Do you have a sense why universalism has just really taken off? It seems, and as far as I can tell, in the last 20, 30 years, maybe, uh, why it didn't get as much airtime perhaps in the past? Do you have a sense why people are more interested in that as opposed to before? Um, no. Um, maybe it's it, just it, hit the mainstream. People are finally exposed to it where it used to be more academic. Yeah, I mean, it hit it hit my radar. So in undergrad 10 years ago, um, for one of my classes, I read a book by uh, David Bentley Hart, the Orthodox theologian, um, called Atheist Delusions, which was an excellent book. So I s- sort of kind of followed him for a while. And then he wrote um, his book on universalism about three or four years ago. And I haven't read his book, but I would read the criticisms of it and then his responses to those criticisms. And I'm like, um, his arguments need to be taken seriously. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm a sucker for doctrine. I think doctrine's really important. So yeah. uh, there's there's some balancing that needs to go on there. I think it's a discussion worth having. Well, there you go. So let's uh, let's let's get into that. And as you said, <clears throat> as we're jumping on the call, we're going to start by grounding ourselves in a bunch of catechism, some magisterial stuff. And I think that's critical. Uh, like what we're regularly trying to do on this show is with all of these talking points, let's identify what the church actually teaches and what she doesn't actually say so that we can start to sift out or filter out uh, what we're reading into into these things so hello friends welcome to pope francis generation it's the show for catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a god of love and goodness your hosts are your hosts are me paul fahey a professional catechist I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. Those are uh, uh, the doctrine, sorry, the kerygma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. And today's a special episode where we're actually doing it live to uh, the paid subscribers of Paul's community. So welcome, friends. Good to be spending about an hour with you this evening. Uh, again, as you have questions, drop them in the comments. We will probably bring them all up uh, towards the end, unless they are particularly apropos for the moment. Okay, Paul, take us away. Where do you want to start on this? Um, for this, it's always great podcasting to just read from the catechism, but I think I think for this, that's where I want to start, because there's some yeah. key things that I think deserve to be heard and explained. Mm-hmm. Um, Back to basics here. So there's actually only for for a topic that dominates 
so much conversation in the faith. There are one, two, three, four, five paragraphs in the Catechism Devoted to Hell of, I don't know, what, 3,000 paragraphs or something? It's a thick thing. It's a a thick book there. Yeah. So um, the church does not spend much time talking about this, but obviously it's there's a lot of importance to it. Uh, so here's part of what the catechism says. <clears throat> so this is uh, starting on 1033, paragraph 1033. So we cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. We cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor, or against ourselves. Our Lord warns us that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means separate, means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. The state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God is called hell. Um, then one, two other short sections. The, the teaching of the church affirms the, the existence of hell and its eternity. So that's important. It's not just hell exists, but it's that hell is a, um, uh, I'm not going to say place, because we're going to talk about that, um, but it's an eternal thing. Reality, um, yeah. Yeah. And the catechism goes on. Um, this is 1035. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in the state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, the eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. And then finally, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary and persistence in it until the end. Um, Oh, in the Eucharistic liturgy and in our daily prayers, the church implores the mercy of God who does not want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Um, so there's a lot to impact there. One of the first things is uh, we have to almost unimagine the Christian imagination that has been handed down to us, which serves a purpose. I mean, if you look at like Dante's Inferno, which a lot of Western Christian imagination about how is, you know, has some of its... Uh, it's grounded in that in some way, which obviously he didn't make up whole cloth. It came from other other uh, traditions and images. Um, those are those have an importance, like mm-hmm. the inferno and his different uh, you know layers of hell and the different sins in that hell. Um, in those in those you know different sections, um, they're they're parables. They tell us something meaningful. These images are important. Like how I believe in the center of hell, it's freezing cold and Satan can't leave because um, he keeps trying to escape, right? He keeps flapping his wings and that cre- that freezes him, freezes the water that he's in. I could be right. It's been a long time since I've read Dante. Oh, uh, I believe so too. It has been about 10 years for me too. Yeah. Um, but these images are inadequate ultimately. And I think it's important to try and unimagine those and rebuild our imagination on what's actually presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so hell is not a place. It's not a location. You're not going to find a planet uh, somewhere in the universe that, that that is hell. It is the state of being 
in separation from God from all eternity, whatever that means. But it's a state of being and not a place. Mm -hmm. um, just as heaven is not a place, there's not a planet called heaven somewhere. Uh, I just watched uh, the new new Thor movie uh, with my wife, and there's there, there's a planet where all the all all the mythical gods all live, right? That's, oh, yeah. This is not the Christian tradition, right? Heaven is not a place; it's a state of being in perfect union with God. So, whatever state of being means, that is what our, our tradition, our theology, refers to when it talks about hell. I'm asking you to just keep right on going. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know where, where, where do we end, want to end up here? Uh, yes. Yeah. Keep going. Um, it's important to, to know that uh, God does not send people to hell. And the catechism was very clear about that. God's desire is for all people to be saved. And I'm going to go back to that. Mm -hmm. I think a few times, um, but rather hell is uh, an individual's choice which was also key. Freedom was, was mentioned several times in the passages that I read. Um, the, the doctrine on hell is a protection of human freedom, which is perhaps, in my mind, maybe the best criticism of universalism is that it steamrolls human freedom. Because if all are going to be saved anyway, then do we really have a choice? Do we really have a meaningful eternal choice in this life? Um, so as you heard in those teachings, um, freedom is very important. Mm -hmm. Something else that came up was the idea of, of, of mortal sin, mm -hmm. hell and mortal sin are connected in a real way. And that is because <clears throat> essentially I'm a, I'm a mortal sin is the choice to separate oneself from God. Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about a lot in several episodes of this podcast, that choice is not something you can make accidentally. That choice is not something you can make in ignorance. That choice is not something you can make out of fear or duress or habit or any of the other things that the church says reduces our culpability. This choice must be free. Um, so this idea of mortal sin and freedom and human and human choice mm -hmm. are all uh, very, very much connected to this doctrine on hell. Mm -hmm. Um, so a question on that front, <clears throat> which I also struggle with, is um, to deserve that kind of fate. Uh, how do I say this? I think a big um, a concern people raise is it doesn't seem like a fair punishment to merit this eternal uh, terribleness. And... Uh, you know, what is a, a flawed human being capable of doing that could ever, ever merit something like that? Now, yeah. I'm sure we can all sit back and play, um, guess who and, you know, come up with a list of names of people who probably most definitely or, you know, whatever. But this is a question I really have. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of, I think people do. Um, because it seems like you would have to fully know God and it, like understand him to definitively reject that. But then that's, and this is actually a point um, that, that 
father. I forgot his name. You just mentioned him, the books that he just wrote on universalism. Oh, DBH, David Bentley Hart. Yeah. He brought up this point in his book. And he's like, to definitively reject God, you have to fully understand God. But that's a logical contradiction because for us as human beings created by God, to know him is to love him magnetically, you know? Yeah. Um, the, and, and that's an argument um, the, that I've read of his that I personally find persuasive where he's like, um, just as you said, in order to have the freedom to make an eternal choice that our, our hearts and our wills have to be so transformed by grace. We have to know God, like you said, but if we know God, then our hearts and our wills have been so transformed that sin is not a possibility, mm -hmm. right? This is a question, you know, that comes up teaching kids. Well, can we sin in heaven? And the answer is, the answer is no, it gets more complicated because then it's like, so does God erase our free will once we get to heaven that we're not capable of sinning? Well, no, it's that he's transformed our heart so that it's the heart of Christ and our minds. So it's the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. So we have more freedom than we do now, but sin is not something we're capable of any, any more than God's capable of sin. Right. There's just, uh, there's no desire for yeah. it. And, yeah. So I find that argument persuasive. Um, on the other hand, the um, uh, pedagogy of God throughout scripture, the way that he relates uh, to his people and teaches us, and really the, the unoriginal fallenness of man throughout those stories mm -hmm. is God gives his people exactly what they want, mm -hmm. right? When the people of Israel, after he frees them from Egypt and he leads them to the desert and he leads them to the edge of the promised land and Moses sends the spies in, and almost all of them come back, except for Joshua and maybe one other person. Anyways, most of them come back and they're like, oh, it's a land filled with giants and, you know, it's all terrible. We definitely don't want to live here. And then the whole people, they rebel against Moses and they're like, well, we don't want to live here. So God's like, okay. And that's when he forces them to wander on the desert for 40 years until that whole generation died so that the new generation could uh, enter the promised land. Um, God gave his people what they wanted or several generations down the line where they're like, we need a King because everybody else has a King. And God's like, you probably don't want a King probably going to cause a lot of problems. And they're like, no, 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 this is definitely what we want. And then apart from King David, all the Kings caused well, even King David, but uh, he was the, the least bad, but all of his kids and descendants were terrible Kings or most of them were. Um, God gives us exactly what we ask for. It's like, so, so there is this symmetry in the story where, um, yeah, if we really don't want God, he's going to, he's going to give us exactly what we want. Yeah. In, uh, you know, you have little ones and I have, I have a little one and there comes points, you know, where what they want is, well, you can't have what you want because it's, it's a self-destructive thing. Uh, so a form of punishment needs to happen here because your vision of the world or of reality or how things should be, your vision doesn't match up to what it is. And so there's a period of punishment that you need to go through to uh, purge yourself, <laughs> to detach from or to increase your resilience, your capacity to make a free choice or to become more mature, to grow up and to, to actually engage with reality. And so... Um, I guess the question is, 
why do we need this uh, topic, this doctrine? Why isn't purgatory enough? So, in many ways, <laughs> as you can see, I'm unconvinced. Which, which, which is, uh, which is not to say I don't value or assent to the doctrine of hell. It's that I'm in a place where um, I'm very comfortable engaging in a dialogue that challenges that, um, but also knowing that the church is the ultimate voice on this and um, her doctrine about salvation has changed and has changed significantly. Um, uh, when you say that, could you just unpack that? Oh, you mean I can't just I can't just throw out that claim and and pretend it's okay? Um, yeah. So at Vatican II, one of the one of the <laughs> before Vatican II, and and still there's this doctrine that says outside the church there is no salvation, and for centuries the church understood that to mean uh, if you are not Catholic, you are not saved. If you're outside, not Catholic, you're outside the visible, physical, tangible, card carrying yeah tribe. Yeah, if you pull out your copy, your copy of Denzinger that everyone has around, right? And you look up in the councils of Florence from whatever century it was, um, you're, like, there's a passage in there that says, um, Muslims and Jews and pagans, you're all going to hell. And, that, and, and that's, I mean, that's a little bit flippant, but it's not very flippant. Like, um, it's, it's very difficult to read. It's very difficult for modern years to read, okay? For centuries, the church understood, if you're not Catholic, you're not saved. Um, and then at Vatican, well, what challenged that a lot was, was the discovery of the new world and whole peoples that had existed for thousands of years who, ne who never had access to the gospel. And there's this really, it's hard to stomach thinking, well, why would God allow thousands of people over hundreds of generations to just mm -hmm. be damned, right? And for I imagine right at that same time, we started rediscovering our own history yeah. and timelines you know we st we started creating history as a concept right around this same time um and i think we never really took that stuff seriously so then it started extending backwards into the ancient past and reading primary sources which we hadn't really done yeah. you know for a long time so at vatican ii the church restates the formula outside the church, there's no salvation, but it understood it differently. And it said, the way we understand this is the only way we have access to the inner life of the Holy Trinity, which is salvation. The only way we have access to the inner life of God is through Jesus Christ and his body, which is the church. So anyone who is saved is saved because of the church and because of Jesus, which is faithful to the doctrine outside the church there's no salvation mm -hmm. but it's a very different understanding than what the church had before so i also recognize that like i don't know if, and maybe for other people this creates a, a cognitive like dissonance that they can't reconcile in themselves mm -hmm. for me though i have found peace with being like yeah i assent to the doctrine yeah i wrestle with it and i'm okay mm -hmm. with that um but, I mean, it's not always the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, just for clarity, which doctrine are we talking about? Being saved? No, on, on health. Right. Yeah. What I see happening is, in, in a way, I'm, I am, can't be anything. But, but if I got a choice on this, I'm incredibly grateful to 
be where you know be born now where we are in this phase of the church's development her evolution her understanding of uh, her um, her clarifying of these gifts that have been given to us and you look at these things and you realize oh this is this is what it was intended to mean to be understood as but it was like you you read the gospel to a viking catholic in the second century well second century fifth century whatever <laughs> sixth century <laughs> i love history i'm not great at it <clears throat> they're going to read everything from a viking lens you know you read things to a jew uh of the first century they're going to understand everything from a jewish lens the greeks went ahead and did that that's why we ended up with four gospels taking the same message and then re uh packaging it or realigning key points for distinct audiences because each audience has distinct values and going to read things into it and for the longest time tribal structures and human thinking are developed where inside is safe outside is dangerous as heck and as we entered as, into the church as hell dominic <laughs> what the hell <laughs> um I think we brought that into, we read that into, you know, assuming God's on my side, because God's always on my side, and that's what everybody says. I think as we have continued, the church has continued to, to lead us and to come into contact with wisdom traditions and mysticism and just time and the, uh, the, the beauty of what's happened the last 400 years. And I think we, we touched on this in like one or two episodes back on... Uh, the engagement of, shall we say, an academic laity uh, with these things outside of the church structure and enriching and bringing insights the church hadn't considered before because reasons, history, human nature. So there's an, with a doctrine like this, there's a point now where I see there's a lot of cultural understanding that is read into this uh, that we've inherited. And all of a sudden we're faced with this idea versus the idea of a God who is relentlessly in love with us. And I'll turn it back over to you in a second. I think a key thing of this past century that has, uh, from my background as, as traditionalist, the visions of Fatima are kind of like, you know, they're supposed to be a high point of Our Lady's contact with humanity. They're really quite a low point because she becomes this harbinger of hell. That's the only thing people know about are those the one or two terrifying visions and for her to be and her message to be reduced purely to y'all have forgotten why we need to evangelize this planet okay you're gonna burn and the air airtime she gives to that message versus the all-encompassing relentless love of god and the desire for the salvation of of all and not just the many if, if i'm remembering correctly um it frustrated me really frustrated me as i started trying to take my faith more seriously and for me i have a deep um she'll correct me when i get there but <laughs> deep devotion and love for her and and wanting to understand you know her on her own terms and such so uh, let me kick that ball back over to you um yeah. what's going on in your mind so a few things first a quick comment on on fatima what's what's wonderful about what you just said is it the prayer that she gave the the children mm -hmm. that every catholic i know says at the end of every decade of every rosary they pray yeah. is may all souls go to heaven especially those mm -hmm. in most need of god's mercy yeah. 
Um, this is a prayer for universal salvation. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, we have these visions of hell. On another hand, she has a, uh, <laughs> to borrow a controversial line, right? A reasonable hope that all are saved. And if Mary has a reasonable hope that all are saved, then... What are we doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's some other things from what you said. So in another way that the church has developed her doctrine, especially since Vatican II, is her understanding of human dignity. Um, it's after Vatican II that we see really definitive condemnations of nuclear war, of slavery. Um, in Fratelli Tutti, the Pope's encyclical from a couple of years ago, he makes, you know, he straight up says human beings have infinite value. Every human person has infinite value. Like, <laughs> that's, that's an unfathomable statement, Right. It means that the life of, well, not for my microphone, the life of one is, we can't quantify that to say that it's worth less than the life, the lives of a hundred, because it's still infinite. Every human being has infinite value. So if that's true, and I believe that that's true, if I deeply, personally harm a being of infinite value, is that not an action uh, worthy of the consequence of an infinite, uh, like an infinite consequence, right? Um, and if I'm someone who has no regard for human life and brutalizes people um, and harms them at their very core, I don't know. To me, that seems like a convincing argument for an infinite or an eternal a state of punishment. Um, there's so I think there's something to that. As you can tell, I'm convinced by different things and yeah. in the different directions. Um, I, I I think purgatory is important here. Um, I had a conversation with a priest. This, this was many years ago, and he was sharing a story he had of uh, he had with an adult woman who was in a lot of suffering um, because several years before she had been sexually assaulted and she was really struggling in her relationship with God and her relationship with the church. And one of the things she struggled with was she's like, I just can't, I can't believe that if the person who did this, if he just, you know, goes to confession or asks for forgiveness, that it's all of a sudden, okay. She's like, this person ruined my life. Mm-hmm. Look at the harm that he did. How can that just be like forgotten if he repents? And the priest shares his response. And he said something like, but it's not, it's not just forgotten, right? Uh, you have, you have God's infinite mercy, but in God's infinite mercy is his justice in that um, we do not escape um, without knowing in a deep and profound personal sense, knowing the harm that we've done. Um, I heard a reflection on purgatory, which is also not a place. It's also, a, you know, a state of being, right? Um, someone was talking about purgatory as the experience of being made aware, witnessing, or even being a part of like experiencing in some way all the harm I've ever done 
to other people. Mm-hmm. All the ways I have failed to love and known, experienced in my very being, the harm that I caused. Mm-hmm. That's purgatory, you know, or that was this person's proposal of it. Um, I don't know if I have deeply harmed beings of infinite value without any regard or without any repentance. I don't know. I feel like experiencing that harm that I caused others for eternity, that doesn't seem, it doesn't necessarily seem like an unfitting punishment. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, purgatory is this place of, in some way, knowing and experiencing the harm that, that we have caused others, because we have to, otherwise, how can we enter the fullness uh, of relationship with God if we have not been purified? How can we truly repent of our sins, right, mm-hmm. in the next life, if we do not know the extent of the harm that we've mm-hmm. done? Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, a post that I thought was very beautiful and maybe difficult, uh, where Peter is posted on it, having to do with, I think it was called Hope for Judas. And it was a commentary on Pope Francis' reflection. Um, do you remember that post and, and what that covers? I don't. I mean, I like where Peter is. I, 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 don't, I, I don't have time to read everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's part, I guess, of a bigger uh, question then. Is there, um, is there anybody there? You know, there's the the line where where Christ says he, the the threat of hell is held up, um, but he says it was a place reserved for the devil and his angels, and I thought that was interesting. I was thinking about that today. He doesn't it say this place that was reserved for all those who deny the goodness of God. It's like from forever or from outside of time. It was never intended for uh, human participation. Um, so where would you go with that? Do we have hope for Judas? So I think that, I mean, and, it, and I'll be very clear here, uh, private revelations like Fatima are not public revelations, are not doctrine, are not, are not b- binding on anybody anybody's conscience but in that revelation in that private revelation mary has hope for everyone's salvation um and that is where i have found myself drawn personally in my own wrestling with like wrestling to understand the truth that is in this doctrine um and that is I've come to a place where I think it is good to hope that everyone is saved. Um, something that's that's really helped me navigate this is from uh, is from Pope Benedict, one of the in the cyclicals he wrote, uh, Space Solve, uh, on hope, and it's it's a beautiful document. There's a wonderful section where he talks about heaven, hell, and purgatory. So, so this is what he says about hell. He said, with death, our life choice becomes definitive. Our life stands before the judge. And 
<laughs> and I love that because it's not like, you know, oh, you made a mistake once. It's like, no, no, the, the orientation of your life, like the whole, mm -hmm. the whole of your life is judged, right? Your life choice becomes definitive. Your mm -hmm. life stands before the judge. And then he goes on, our choice, which in the course of an entire life takes on a certain shape, can have a variety of forms. There can be people who have totally destroyed their desire for truth and readiness to love. People for whom everything has become a lie. People who have lived for hatred and have suppressed all love within themselves. I mean, like, hold on to that for a second. What mm -hmm. he's describing, okay, I'll keep going it and then I'll comment. He goes on. He said, this is a terrifying thought, but alarming profiles of this type can be seen in certain figures of our own history. In such people, all would be beyond remedy and the destruction of the good would be irrevocable. This is what we mean by the word hell. So I hear this and I'm reminded of how the catechism connects mortal sin to hell. The choice of hell is a mortal sin. Like those are, those are synonymous with each other. What Pope Benedict is saying is that a mortal sin, the choice that, that sends us to hell of our own free will is the choice to destroy our desire for truth, to destroy our readiness for love, where we prefer lying over the truth and, we, and where we prefer hatred over love, right? This choice is not an accident. This choice is not a slip up. Um, at the same time, that seems like a very high bar to meet. It seems like a very high bar to be someone who suppresses, you know, all desire for truth in their heart. But I mean, I hear the story of uh, Pharaoh in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, mm -hmm. the choices that he had throughout and in the narrative pattern, it says, and he hardened his heart and he hardened his heart and he hardened his heart throughout. And then at the end it says, and God hardened his heart. God didn't harden his heart, but it's this way of communicating like, you know, he, he had closed himself off entirely. Right. Yeah. I think uh, it was actually a post on where, <clears throat> where Peter is some commentary on that scripture that was, was talking about, um, depending on what you put in the sun, the, the nature of a thing will react a certain way. You put ice in the sun, it'll melt. You put clay in the sun, it'll grow hard. So that story is more of a statement of his, uh, inner disposition to truth as he was understanding it as God was trying to work in him. And he's to say, God hardened him as effective as saying a sunlight hardened a pot. Uh, it was his disposition. Uh, yeah. So the same thing we're talking about here. At, at the same time, I mean, I don't personally know people to this extent, but I know people who are definitely on this spectrum of behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Who will, we're lying. It's just as easy as speaking the truth for them. Right. And if it's to their advantage, they will lie over big things, over small things. Right. Where uh, destroying people's reputations, they don't give a second thought to. Mm -hmm. um, like, I know people like this. Um, I, like, I, I know this behavior. So what Pope Benedict is presenting here, I think meaningfully so, is he cuts through this cultural idea of hell that we have that one mistake is going to send us to hell, right? Mm -hmm. That is not in this at all. At the same time, though, he, he 
he seems to believe and is presenting a teaching where um, there are people, like he says, figures in our own history have this, you know, have behaved this way, mm -hmm. um, that the possibility does exist that they, that they would be in hell. Um, this is probably where I land, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, as, as you've heard, I'm pulled in lots of different directions. This is, this is where I probably land, mm -hmm. but I think there is space as well to hope mm -hmm. for everyone's salvation. And I, that's what, that's what I loved about von Balthasar's book. Um, what is it called? Dare we hope? But I think it was, that's, I'm, I think that's a mistranslation somehow. And it's supposed to be ought we, or, or we ought to hope. Uh, because he's he's taking those five paragraphs and then he's drawing all of the dots and doing it independently of a lot of the reading into or the extrapolation that's that's happened, you know. Um, and I'm, I after, I've read that now I think at at least twice um, through highlighting and stuff and trying to make sure I understand it. And, and the way that he points it out is the only person we could be. Um, you know, relatively sure of is ourselves that, you know, I'm responsible for me, but I could hold out hope for every single other human being and assume that they have all kinds of mitigating circumstances, uh, inherited terrible habits, as horrible as they are, I could invent some sort of excuse to perhaps give them a chance to not, you know, uh, consign somebody forever. I'm the only one where I am, you know, have no confidence, but I'm sure God will save everybody else. And he's like, that's, that's the fundamental attitude we should have towards every other human being. Because if at any point you assume otherwise, how can you love them? And if we're called to have a, a, you know, a love as deep and, and enduring and relentless as God's, um, and we have the parables of, you know, Christ going after the, the lost sheep, if we're not daily animated by that, then all of a sudden we're back to where we were, creating clear boundaries and just looking for cues that demonstrate, well, I guess you ain't saved because, you know, it's not being lived out or something. Yeah. And of course, then we can't see what we just said with you know, the arrogance in that. Um, I want to take a just a quick pause to talk about our, our sponsor for this. But what I want to now talk about then or ask you is, uh, again, what do we do with this now? If we can reasonably hope. And like he says, and I loved how he ended his book saying, we can't claim to know definitively because we stand uh, on this side of judgment. We haven't been given to know. We have been told two pieces of, of a puzzle that just don't seem to fit together. It's like trying to bite the wall. You know, It's real, but it's bigger than our head and we can't get our teeth around it. What do you do with this? Well, he's, he's saying you can't um, come down too hard on one side or the other, but there are certain key cues we can take, which is this relentless love, relentless hope that God models for us. And therefore we must model and it must be the cornerstone. So now I want to ask you, what does this do to things like evangelization? Because this is, I've grappled with this. I think everybody who, feels like my favorite toy is, is kind of being taken away here. And there's some people who obsess over this, you know, I think way too much. And then the rest of us are kind of like, I don't know what to do with it because I don't like it. It's not a likable thing. It's not meant to be. But um, for far too long, the 
energy of growing the tribal membership of the church was a very well-meaning, but it was it was warmed from down below as opposed to the fire of the Holy Spirit animating the... the That's a good way of putting it. It was warmed from down below. <laughs> it's like we're, we're all trying to help everybody get away from this as opposed to God actively loves you and we're, there's still human dignity and human freedom in play and God's relentless love. It's like there's this shift, this paradigm shift that's happened. And I think we're slowly catching up to it. So I got ahead of myself. Let me just take a moment just to thank our sponsor. Um, Select to give, they have, uh, because of them, we're able to produce this and bring this to you. Um, more Catholic leaders choose Select International Tours than any other pilgrimage company. With 35 years of award-winning travel planning, they have a track record of excellence and faithfulness. And they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, helping Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or if you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Okay, so if uh, you know we can't evangelize from a place of punishment, what's going to get them in the door? If that's... Isn't that how we should think about it? Yeah. Um, but I, and I think you hit on it. Um, of what is our uh, what is our motivation? And we start with, as with all things, uh, who God has revealed Himself to be. So uh, often in discussions about um, hell and universal salvation and things like this. Um, there's the passage from Jesus about how uh, uh, it's the wide road, right? The majority, it's the wide road that leads to uh, hell and the narrow road that leads to salvation. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was from Peter Kreeft. Um He's like, yes, that's true. He said, but for God, 1% uh, is too many. And 99% is too few. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important. Is, is we look at the life and the teaching of Jesus, the image of God that he reveals to us is a God who, and, and I love the parable of the shepherd and, and the lost sheep, because it says that there's a hundred sheep and, and one leaves, and the shepherd chases the sheep down until he finds it. Like there is a persistence here, a very real persistence here. Mm -hmm. God desires for all to be saved. And he chases us down, each one of us, until he finds us. And, but, except we're not talking about a shepherd. We're talking about the God who created the universe. Mm -hmm. We're talking, we, we are talking about an eternal and infinite God. So how, how long can he chase us down? He can chase us down forever. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that's the thing. It's like, <clears throat> that's what I, I, again, coming out of reading um, uh, Hart's book, some of the things I struggled with was how neatly, like a, like a syllogism, his arguments are. And you get to the end of them and you're like, I can't upend this. And that was kind of his point of putting this book. Like, these were the strongest arguments that he could make. And I didn't know what to do with them. I went back and reread Balthazar and was like, this feels like the healthy holding of attention. He would call it, He's chickening out, but it would make more sense. Again, he's orthodox. He's like, I don't care what Rome says. That's not how I approach all of this. 
we're Catholics, so we do. Yeah. And Balthazar is very deeply faithful, but at the same time understanding there's a tension and there is a mystery here. Um, but this one thing that really struck me was leaning towards, well, both of them, this idea that how could I outwit God? How could I ever think to outwit somebody who already exists in the future and knows what I'm going to do? I mean, who exists completely outside of time. Somebody who operates within me at every moment. Um, and then, like you said, who desires union with me and me with him. And, you know? and we know, like it's also traditional church teaching going back centuries or more, that God can change our desires, right? And you know, the second synod of orange, uh, the only passage I know from the second synod of orange is that uh, the desire for conversion is itself a gift of the Holy Spirit. God can change our desires. So mm -hmm. if God can change our desires and he desires me desperately to be with him, then is he not going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at me and give me and make it so that I want to repent, that I'm overwhelmed by the desire to repent. Yeah. Um, and I and I believe it was Larry Chap. Uh, he's an American theologian um, who um, recently wrote about in this too. And uh, we also have to understand that uh, death may not be what we imagine either. That in a theological sense, death is the separation of soul from body. There's not one medical instrument in the world that determines when that happens, mm -hmm. right? We know when the heart stops beating and we know when the brain stops functioning. Is that when the soul leaves someone's body? But also, what does that mean to a God who's outside of time? Like, what does it mean when the doctrine says, when Benedict says and the catechism says, at the moment of death, we are our whole life is judged. But the moment of death from a, from a, from a, from a theological sense, from the perspective of God, mm -hmm. may not be when the monitor stops beeping on the, in the hospital bed, right? Those may be different things. Um, so in those moments, at the end of someone's life, is not God going to throw everything he has? No. And... Yeah, and I have to believe that. Um, that there's a passage from the Summa from St. Thomas Aquinas. It's under the section where the question is, uh, can the wayfarer be saved, right? And he says this, he says, hope does not trust chiefly in grace already received. So that would be like the sacraments. Hope does not trust chiefly in whether or not someone's already been baptized. That's how I understand it. Hope doesn't trust chiefly in grace already received, but on God's omnipotence and mercy whereby even he that has not grace can obtain it so as to come to eternal life. What Thomas is saying is that our hope for salvation does not rest on our own works. It doesn't even rest on whether or not we've been baptized. Mm -hmm. It rests ultimately on who God has revealed himself to be. Yeah. Um, so I, f I feel very convicted in that direction. Mm -hmm. Is not is God not going to throw everything He has at someone? Yeah, and that's what I liked about the Holy Father's reflection on on Judas. He's he's like the whipping boy for this whole discussion because it seems to be so obvious, and you know, 
Catholic celebrities and so on have all have gone on to speak about male videos and talking about all of this. But <clears throat> the Holy Father points out, kind of riffing on what you were saying here, uh, I think we can start to see at the end, the last few hours of you know Judas's life, that kitchen sink is being thrown at him because he is in so much regret. And then he goes to to end it all, just to stop it. He can't deal with how difficult it is and so on. But then um, I think it's, it, I don't know if it's become the church's position, but I, I've seen it now everywhere where what happens in the last final moments um, as we're struggling to breathe, what is God doing with that person and their soul and conversations are being had there, that final last moment of regret and that movement towards regret is like, God's like, that's it. I'll work with that. You know, how can we not assume or hope that, you know, I was working with him in that. So I want to add in here too. um, If someone is Christian, if someone who's been baptized, I believe we have, this is strong language. Maybe I'll walk back for a minute at some point. I believe we have an obligation to hope for their salvation regardless of their life. It doesn't matter. And I say this because um, uh, of our prayers at the liturgy and the way we pray is how we believe, right? So at every funeral mass, for someone who's been baptized, for every funeral mass, towards the end when the priest comes down from the sanctuary and prays over the casket, mm-hmm. he says this prayer, which is just amazing. He says, into your hands, Father of mercies, um, we commend our brother or sister in the sure and certain hope that together with all who have died in Christ, he or she will rise with him. With the sure and certain hope. Now the priest, it's not just the priest praying this, it's the whole body of Christ. It's the entire congregation praying this with the priest. No, 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 not just the whole congregation. It's the entire church throughout the world all the saints in heaven are praying with sure and certain hope that our brother or sister who has died in Christ because of baptism is saved. So who am I to not have sure and certain hope of anyone who's been baptized? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, going back to St. Thomas Aquinas, Mm -hmm. it's not that this person has been baptized. That's not the source of my hope. The source of my hope is the God, who God has revealed himself to be. I want to come back to that point that you were starting to make, or that you did make about death. Um, Because I've been really thinking very hard about that for the last uh, five, seven years or so. And the one thing that's really become very, um, just, just growing in clarity is, like you said, we don't really know what it is. And the one thing that is, uh, growing in clarity for me is the church. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. I'm probably going to say this and butcher this wrong, but um, the only f- state of death that the church not fears, but warns us against, is trying to guide us and guard us against is the death of grave sin, the definitive putting ourselves outside of relationship with God. That's the only death we need to be concerned about. Um, because biological death, I mean, the saints were like, it just can't come fast enough. I mean, God, you decide on the timeline here, but I can't wait to come meet you. It's on. 
it was, and for the, the martyrs, you know, biological death was not a, as big a deal. And so I can't remember who it was, but some priest said something like, the beauty of the Hail Mary is that it is not just praying for the moment of death at the end of our lives. We have a, that's a, that's far too materialist mm. a view to only think of the matter um, and that death is equated to it's, separation of... It's to pray of, for us at the moment of our temptation. At every moment, perhaps when we might be in danger of dying or in danger of death, because that's the only death the spiritual world, heaven cares about is, are you in relationship or outside of relationship with God? And that means we can, we do die and are resurrected many times and it's so ho-hum and we have no sense of the majesty of confession and what baptism has done for us. Yeah. Um, but that right there, because then what happens is, it's like <laughs> once you are meant to be, all of us are, alive in Christ now, we start living the life of heaven now. Inversely, it's also true, we can start living the life of hell now. And then come the moment of physical death, it's, it, you're already calcified. You're already set on that path. It's just the revelation of your own life choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I'm not sure that our particular judgment at the moment of our death is going to be a surprise to us. I, I guess maybe if someone has <sighs> become so... Uh, has rejected the truth so much that they are living in self-delusion, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a surprise for us. I I will push back a little bit on something you said, though. Good. Uh, you said something like the spiritual world or or heaven, like isn't concerned with material or bodily death. It's, it's, it's concerned with you said. Okay. Right. I'll throw that in air quotes. But keep. Yeah, going. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because just because I have the chance, I want to speak into that. Because I think the incredible thing is that God does care about that. Yeah. Isn't there a line in scripture like God mourns the death of his little ones or something? Yeah. And you see the story of Lazarus where mm -hmm. Jesus is moments away from raising his friend from the dead and he weeps because death is that ugly. But yeah, there's this weird... There's this weird tension within Christianity where on one hand, death is ugly and horrible and terrible, and it's a consequence of sin. God does not desire death. He hates death. This but disintegration Christ, of the human reality. But Christ transforms death into, be, into the entrance into eternal life. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're still catching up to this, you know, this, this ancient sense of death, this pre-Christian sense of death, the terrible finality and fading away and you know, go, what is it? Do not go kindly into that, that good night or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, don't go softly, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we've gone to your question about how does this, how yeah, does let's, this, let's start wrapping, yeah. you know, so yeah. why, if we're not evangelizing then to save people from hellfire, um, if it is a reality that is part of the human condition, part of, you know, but that's not the, the number one driver to spread the gospel because that's the, the great commission that Christ left us with. Baptize everybody, and I'm with you until all till the end of time, into the ages. So, you know, 
memory serves with the Baltimore Catechism. So much of that is animated by this this uh, attrition, I think is the word, or this fear of of sin, this need to turn towards you know um, the, our, our human depravity and and so on. So if we're taking that away, yeah, and what do we got? And I'm not sure we're taking that away. We should be afraid of sin. We shouldn't be obsessed or mm-hmm. paranoid with it. Maybe I should say decentralizing it. Or, or, yeah. You know. I think what we have, and I guess I can only speak for myself. I evangelize. I share Jesus with others because Jesus has made my life better. Because he, he has healed me and shaped me and convicted me and like transformed me. He hasn't, he hasn't made my life better necessarily in a material way. It's not like I'm living a, necessarily a more prosperous life because I've encountered Jesus. But he's given me, like I think about the story of St. Maximilian Colby, which I've, I'm certain I've shared before in one episode or another, how he's in Auschwitz and he's in hell on earth. And yet all the eyewitness testimonies are that he's this picture of peace and joy in the in the midst of a Nazi concentration camp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Lord has a lot more work to do in me, but I've seen glimpses of that in my own life where that peace and that security and that joy in the Lord, regardless of my circumstances, mm-hmm. that's what the Lord's given me and mm-hmm. it continues to grow in me. Mm-hmm. I want others to have that, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't. I don't believe I need to be afraid for their e- e- eternal damnation to want to share that with them. Right. I think, and this is important. And um, before we end, because <laughs> I've been on like a spiritual abuse kick, <laughs> the yeah. the threat of hell is incredibly spiritually abusive. Um, We see it in more extreme uh, circles and more like fringe groups or cults or more, I don't know, more rigid corners of the church. You'll see outright like threats of hell, Mm -hmm. but much more mainstream and just as problematic is this um, flippant. um, Well, if you miss, miss mass tomorrow on Sunday, it's a mortal sin. Well, you just, we heard the catechism. It said mortal sin will send you to hell, right? Like mortal sin is the choice for hell. Or we say, well, I guess uh, based on our podcast last week about NFP, well, if you use contraception, like that's a mortal sin. And okay, there's some truth in that. Like, okay, it's gravely wrong. But, but, but mortal sin is the free choice for hell. It's not. It's not sufficient. Missing mass on Sunday, knowing what mass is and why God wants you there and freely choosing to miss it. Yeah, that's a mortal sin. Just missing mass on Sunday isn't necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know this person's circumstances. I don't know whatever. Like using contraception with with the full knowledge of, uh, uh, with the full knowledge of the moral law and with perfect freedom or sufficient freedom 
Yes, that's a moral sin, but just using contraception alone isn't. But we throw this stuff around all the time. Um, I hear it from kids who heard it from their parents all the time. And I hear from adults all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, this thing's, this thing's a mortal sin. But, and I think a lot of people recognize what we mean by that. It means, okay, this is a bad thing to do. Okay. Right. But um, people who struggle with scrupulosity or people whose consciences have been abused already, mm-hmm. like what, what, what's being received and what's being formed in their conscience or malformed in their conscience is this idea that, um, oh, if I do that thing, I'm damned to hell. I'm separated from God. And we, and now we've entirely lost this idea of like, of what Pope Benedict taught of, no, no, this is the free choice to reject love and reject truth and all this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. What we see is in people deathly afraid that one mistake is going to send them to hell. And that fear doesn't come from nowhere. That fear is placed there by parents, by catechists, by priests, by a, a culture, whatever. And it's incredibly mm-hmm. harmful to people. And I think we need to move away from the language of hell, not to reject hell as a doctrine, but this flippant way that we talk about it. Um that that really is a way to try even well-intentioned, but it's a well-intentioned way Mm -hmm. to try and coerce and manipulate people's behavior. Yeah. It makes me think of the Holy Father talking about, uh, what was it? Sex, I think it was. And he's like, it's everywhere, but we're not talking about it enough. You know, it's treated, like you said, so flippantly, but with no actual sense of the gravity of it, but also the gravity of the human, the human person. Um, in my own kind of unpicking of the um, reading into and the habits that have been laid down for me coming from that, that more radical traditionalist background, the things that I started struggling with was if I no longer see this as the central um, kerygma reason for sharing the gospel, if I take that away, I kind of feel like I think a lot of people do when it's it's taken away it's like well you just defanged the church like she she doesn't bring any heft into this fight and then and then i think well wait what does she need to do with fangs why does she need to become you know this this language these metaphors are off you know the, the church's mission isn't isn't to like you know save people from eternal hellfire that's a sure that's a part of it the church's mission is to bring about the reign of god on earth and to transform the world why have we reduced it to something so so that that sense there strikes me as the uh, whether it's accurate or not, the way it's understood as the the Spanish Inquisition sense of coming in and using divine power to uh, to to damn and divide and and so on. So you take that away, and then what are you left with? And you kind of feel kind of feel aimless. And what I would say is, or as it's sitting with me, is if you find yourself in that position, as I am and have, then that says something about our relationship to everything we say we love and believe. And we're, I am standing in the position of that that Pharisee who's saying, "Thank God I am not like them, because this, that the the gospel I am living is an, I am okay, state. I'm not damned. I'm and." 
really? That's how low we're setting the bar? So really what it is, what I see it is, uh, for those who argue about this, when it comes to things like evangelization or just living out the church or just how to witness at all, tells me this is a lack of imagination mm -hmm. or a lack of understanding of the actual impact that living the church has or living the gospel has on the world in the here and now. It's not just to save you from uh, 80 years from now, but that living this out now, uh, these tenets of the gospel, these three core things that we're wrestling with in this show, um, it transforms lives. It changes lives for the better. And every single human being needs to come into contact with this, needs to be transformed by this, needs the hope, the the, the physical health, the well-being, the the self-actualizing, you know, the the level Maslow levels of hierarchy, right? The the freedom for the individual, the chance to begin to understand and enter into relationship with God. Um, and then as a culture to then begin to do that. And then as a nation, and then as as a world, to the brotherhood of the human family, as the Holy Father keeps calling us to. There's all so much that needs to be done to create the the life of heaven not completely, but to start echoing it here uh, and now to create that goodness. And what, what we end up seeing is the living ministry of Christ's three years, casting out demons, you know, returning to people their freedom, healing them, restoring them to health of body so that they're able to then, you know, understand how to assert their own dignity against oppressors. Why is all that important? So that the individual can begin to understand the the value of their own choice as a free, um, valued and valuable human being in the face of a God who wants every single one of us to yeah. be in loving relationship with him. And it highlights the mission that God has created us for in being a part of the church. Um, I, I hope in future uh, seasons of this podcast, and, and I don't hope, I, in future seasons of this podcast, we'll be talking about Catholic social teaching, but exactly. there's there's a writer from about 100 years ago writing about Catholic social teaching, and he says something like, and I'm paraphrasing, he's like, why do we in the church spend so much time focused on what's going to send us to the confessional and less about what God actually wants? He, and the example he gives, he's like, yeah, someone can not technically be a drunkard, but that doesn't mean they're living the virtue of temperance. Mm-hmm. Right, he's making this point where it's like we're so focused on was well, this a sin or not? Is this gonna is this a mortal sin or not? Yeah. And we're not focused on where is God sending me into the world to take risks to serve others and to bring about the kingdom of God in others' lives. And I think that's a great metaphor to wrap with. Uh, I remember hearing Jason Everett talk about this and all of his chastity talks and stuff in the past and. Uh, I, I think he said something like this. If not, I'm extrapolating. But <clears throat> something like, if the definition of your relationship is how far is too far? Like, if that's your first question, and he's like, your whole attitude towards this is wrong. If you're trying to figure out where is too far, what's going to send me to confession, what's going to put me in the bad place, then, yeah, you're doing it wrong. As opposed to, what do I need to do? Who do I need to become? to fully empower and enter into a mature, free, loving relationship for the betterment of somebody else and my community and myself and the future and my children and and everything. It, it, it's a mediocre Christianity to just to spend our life just trying to avoid sin. 
There you go. I think that's a good place to wrap. So, hey, thank you for those who are joining us, Paul. If people want to uh, follow up with questions, which they I'm sure will have, as they have probably had after uh, past episodes, where can they find you online to uh, share questions? Yeah, you can find me at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. You can um, sus- subscribe for free if you haven't already. Um, you get updates when there's new podcast episodes and um, I write usually two or three times a week as well. Uh, you can also become a paid subscriber. You get some extra things, but um, but but mostly you get to support um, this work, this ministry. Um, uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah, without your support, this is impossible. So if you can check out PopeFrancisGeneration.com and um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for this show. Thank you for... Um, the work that you do. And for those who, who are watching this or catching this as a podcast, or you're watching the replay on YouTube, if you're not familiar with smart Catholics, our whole thing is about getting smarter, being a better Catholic and growing as a human person. Uh, smart Catholics is working. We're, we're building not only an online community, but it's like a, it's a platform to create these weekly podcasts, free courses and live workshops from passionate ministries, just like Paul. It's a place for us to discuss ideas, keep learning and make friends. And ultimately, yeah, let's just get smarter together. So if that sounds like you, come and check us out at smartcatholics.com. As we like to say at the end of every episode, please, till next time, say a short prayer for us and for yourself. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. Thanks again, everybody. God bless you.